Lord, I just ask you to help me to speak the words that you want to speak out today. And just give us listening ears and listening hearts. Amen. As I was preparing this, a few words sort of came to me. Um, Desperation, faith, personal encounter with Jesus, change, and a promise. In the sort of preceding bit of uh, chapter 7 of Mark, Jesus had had a very intensive time. He'd been teaching. Um, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had been criticizing Jesus and his followers on not keeping the Jewish rituals and hand-washing and what they ate, etc., And Jesus responded to them with teaching that it is what comes out of our hearts, as Sandra preached last week, that matters. And he called the crowd together and he taught them. And then he drew the disciples to one side and he taught them. And from this very pressurized time of teaching and preaching, he withdraws on this one occasion into land outside Galilee, outside Jewish territory. And I want you to imagine that I have a map of Galilee in front of me here. Okay, so we have north here, Jerusalem's down south, you've got the Mediterranean on the west, and you've got Tyre and Sidon, towns in Phoenicia on the northwest, and Jesus went out of Galilee, up to Tyre and Sidon in the area around there, then right round to the east, and down um, past the Sea of Galilee, and down into the area of the ten towns, the Decapolis. And we know that people in Tyre and Sidon knew Jesus because in Luke 6.17, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, it mentions that there were people from Tyre and Sidon there, so it wasn't just Jews who were coming to hear him. And Jesus was trying to remain hidden, it says in our passage. Was it for some rest, some peace and quiet? Mark doesn't actually mention the disciples, but Matthew, in his version of this story in chapter 15, does. And the disciples were clearly with Jesus. Maybe Jesus withdrew from public view because he wanted to to particularly teach his disciples. And there was so much going on with the criticism and the explosive reactions to the healings and the miracles that were happening. However, into this situation, a Syrophoenician woman immediately found where he was and she fell on his knees before him. And Mark notes that she was a Greek, which might just mean she was a Gentile or, you know, a Greek by religion, and a Syrophoenician from Sidon rather than from Libyan Phoenicia, which is in North Africa. And she begged him, and she begged him, and she kept on begging him. The tense of the verb means to keep on begging for him to heal her demon-possessed daughter. So the first thing we notice, she's desperate. She's absolutely desperate. She's so desperate, she crosses several barriers to reach Jesus. She's a woman approaching a man. She's a Gentile approaching a Jew. And she's a Syrophoenician Gentile and there's approaching a Jew, and there's a lot of history in the past between um, the Jews and the Syrophoenicians. And we might be here today feeling that there are barriers between us and Jesus that make it difficult for us to speak to him. It might be barriers of weakness or weariness, sickness or sin, feeling that we're not good enough, or even that we're too good, that we have everything okay in our lives, thank you very much. But they're paper barriers. They cannot stop us reaching Jesus if we want to. And he's ready and he's waiting and wanting to speak to us about whatever we want to share with him. Now this woman comes with an agenda to get her little daughter healed. And she's desperate, desperate as any mother would be. And Jesus' response seems strange. It's very difficult to know from the scripture 
what tone of voice he was speaking in. At first reading, his, his words seem a bit hard and unsympathetic, yet we know that Jesus has healed Gentiles without such comments, like the Roman centurion's servant, for instance. Some commentators have called Jesus unkind, but unkindness is a sin, and Jesus is the sinless Son of God, who was only able to conquer Satan on the cross because he had never sinned. So unkindness and harshness isn't an option. We have to dig deeper. Um, the preacher John Henry Howard said, describing Jesus, no sin, the fine, sensitive membrane of the soul, had in no wise been scorched by the fire of iniquity. So what does Jesus say? First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. He was saying that the Jews had the first claim, and this is sort of confirmed in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent out the disciples and he commanded them to avoid the Gentiles and the Samaritans. Don't go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. Then dogs were considered unclean animals by the Jews and generally they roamed outside wild. To call someone a dog would be an insult. But the Greek word, kunarion, which Jesus uses here, is not the word for wild dogs, but it's a diminutive of the word kuon, for a dog that's kept indoors, meaning a little dog or a puppy dog. The children refers to the Jews, maybe especially God's, uh, Jesus' special band of followers, the disciples. Jesus' focus is to provide a meal for the Jews first and foremost, and then would come the Gentiles' turn. Matthew recorded um, that Jesus said, I was not sent except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Um, and just before Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection, he informed the apostles, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the sequence of places where the apostles would witness um, is in the manifest the order in which the gospel will be preached. So it was starting off in Jerusalem and then going out to Judea, then to Samaria and then the ends of the earth. Now Jesus' statement to the Syrophoenician woman indicated that the Jewish nation was Jesus' primary target for evangelism during his earthly ministry. But what is the woman's response to an answer like this? Well, she doesn't take offence. She doesn't get angry. She doesn't get sulky. She doesn't storm out and leave. She responds on her knees and she calls him Lord. And in Matthew's version, it even says she worshipped him. Yes, Lord, she replied. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The yes is a strong affirmation. It's yes indeed, certainly. She recognizes him as Lord, whatever that means to her. And she goes on, she picks up on Jesus' words. And she uses them to point out that even the little crumbs, unwanted by the little children from their meal, can feed the little dogs. These diminutives in Greek make it a homely family picture little children dropping little crumbs to feed the little dogs. But there's been a shift in her attitude. She still wants healing for her daughter, and she's still com completely confident in Jesus' ability to do this. She never hesitates. She's such faith. It's wonderful. But she's willing to accept that whatever crumb Jesus gives to her, and it could be nothing, um, it, that's okay. So there's been a change there, and that's come out of her personal encounter with Christ. Jesus responds positively and affirms her faith in him. And again, we see it's not faith in faith or faith in prayer, it's faith in Jesus. 
and, she, and he heals her daughter at a distance immediately. So the healing was a crumb from the children's table. And the, um, the tense of the verb for the healing it shows that the action was completed. The demon was gone for good. And in our account, the woman just leaves. And without further ado, she goes home and she finds her daughter freed from the demon and quiet on her bed. Now, Jesus has treated her as an individual, just as he does with each of us. But he stretched her. He draws, he draws her on. He draws out the faith he knows that is there. And the result is she gets to know him better and more personally and to trust him more. But she's not only received a crumb of, of healing, which is the healing of her daughter, there's also another crumb, which is the huge promise for the Gentiles, that though it's only crumbs for the Gentiles in Jesus' lifetime, there'll be a full meal later for them, as we see later on in the New Testament. Now, this woman can't be the same again, because she's got that hope and that promise tucked in her heart. And the, the whole story, actually, is a crumb in itself for the Gentiles, um, amid the meals that Jesus was serving to the Jews, the, the Gentiles listening would, could hear that there was also a promise for them later on. Then Jesus left Phoenicia, and he kept out of Galilee, going east, and down the east side of the Sea of Galilee into the uh, region of the Greek cities of Decapolis. And some unknown people bring a deaf and a dumb man to, to Jesus. They beg him to um, heal him. And you can imagine the noise and the hullabaloo going on around. And it would have been very difficult for the deaf and dumb man to focus on Jesus and what he was doing. So Jesus takes him aside, away from all the people, and they're alone together. And then he, he puts his fingers in his ears, he spits, he touches his tongue. And again, we see Jesus treating this man as an individual and giving him individual treatment, and he's healed. And Jesus told him not to speak of it. Now, it's quite hard after receiving a miracle like that not to, to share it. Um, and there are, um, are repeated commands of Jesus to the people not to speak. Um, and the people ignore them because they're so excited and encouraged by the miracles. But they're not necessarily really interested in his teachings. They're not necessarily wanting a personal encounter with Jesus. They're wanting the miracles. They're wanting the healings. But do they want a personal encounter and you remember the ten lepers who were healed, and only one came back and thanked Jesus and wanted to follow him. So personal encounters with Jesus carry on into our everyday lives and change things there. And it's a challenge for us at the beginning of 2010. Do we want to encounter Jesus in our everyday lives, to really meet with him and hear what he has to say to us at work, at home, at school, in our families? Now, of course, the Syrophoenician woman could go and meet Jesus direct, face to face, and tell her what was weighing on her heart. And for us, we go to Jesus in prayer. That's where we meet him face to face. Prayer is like throwing ourselves down before Christ and having our own personal encounter with him, either individually or altogether. And as secret agents, our prayers can be standing in the gap for people and situations. If you imagine God's up there and you're here standing in the gap, and somebody or a situation is down there, you're providing a link standing in the gap. And as secret agents, we can pray and we can send long-range prayer missiles into people's lives or situations, countries, 
and it'll be preparing the ground. It'll be changing things at a distance. We may or may not see the answers, but things will be changing. And we can use the word of God in our prayers and send them out like missiles, for instance. If these are verses, so do catch them. There's a verse there for you, and there's some more coming. And as we know, the word of God, as in Isaiah 55, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and don't return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So take those verses if you catch one and... um, Pray about them. There's something for you there. Now, also as secret agents, we can be um, secret agents through prayer. Now, here is, is a prayer card, and it's to encourage us, each of us, to pray for every day for a year, that's every day through the whole of 2010, for one person to become a Christian. So we write the name of the person on the top line. And also to pray for a person in Christ the Lord here. And you write their name there. And we don't write our own names on the card. So you will, in a minute, we're going to distribute those um, during the worship. And you'll have two cards. You write the names of the two people, and you take it home, and you keep it there as a reminder to pray. And the other one we're going to um, gather in a basket at the back, and they'll go into a box. As just part of our commitment, sometimes we, we do things and we don't sort of tell anybody um, we can sort of forget about it. But if we've sort of acknowledged to, in, to the church that there's prayer for these two people going on, it's part of our commitment. Now, I appreciate that we'll all need to go away and, and pray once we've got the cards, because we'll need to ask God who he wants us to pray for. So please remember to bring the cards back next week. Okay. And there's some guidelines on the back, and expect changes. Um, I'll just pray. Lord, we thank you for the example of the Syrophoenician woman and her faith um, and her trust in you that overcame barriers and responded to you in in such a, a positive way. And Lord, thank you for the promise that's there for us. Help us to have personal encounters with you through this coming week in all sorts of different places and at different times, not just in church on a Sunday. And Lord, would you just grow our faith, help grow our sort of faith in being secret agents and people of prayer that, that can send out um, your, your word and your encouragement and your purposes through our prayers. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>